Once upon a time, there was a young lady, so lovely in so many ways that she was demanded by several kings and princes across the land. And eventually, her choice fell upon a certain emperor of great power and strength whom she would marry. And the emperor was so thoroughly enamored with the beauty and poise of his new empress that others soon took notice. Familiarity breeds contempt, in life as in fairy tales. And one of the people closest to the emperor, his prime minister, was a very selfish and cruel man. But this prime minister also happened to be an archpriest, and by that held nearly supreme influence over the emperor. And fearing that this woman's influence over the emperor would soon usurp his, he resolved to effect her destruction. And the evil priest worked upon it for some time. And then one day, when the emperor was alone, he entered his chamber and said unto him, O mighty emperor, may heaven guard you from the wicked designs of your empress, who now seeks to destroy you. The emperor, with unconditional faith in his priest, rushed to his wife, dragged her by the hair, and bellowed at her. Base wretch, I am too well informed of your infamous proceedings. And he dashed her to the ground and told her, Prepare for your death. And it is then that she informed her husband of the surprise that she had been saving for him. Oh, take pity, my sire, for I implore you and beg your compassion on behalf of our child, whom I now bear within me. And so, rather than death, the emperor banished the empress to the forest, where she would give birth to not one, but two sons. But in the wild of the forest, the banished empress would lose both her infant sons, one to a king out on a hunt, who takes the boy for his own, naming him Valentine. And the other, who was not quite as lucky, but was lifted from the forest floor by a wild beast, a ferocious bear, in fact, a mother bear, who steals the child away to her cave, where he is, however, not assailed, but reared, and suckled by the maternal beast wherefrom he grows tremendously in size and strength and comes to range the forest with such a fury that no rival, man nor beast, dare approach him, nor the cave in which he and his family of bears dwell. And with the passage of time, his reputation spreads throughout the land, not just among the wilds, but among the people of the villages too who come to call him Orson because he was raised by bears. Uh, now, if Orson doesn't ring the bear bell for you, run it by any French friends you may have. And keep in mind that this tale originates in medieval France. Meanwhile, Valentine, raised by the king as if his own, becomes more accomplished and brave than any other man within the kingdom including the king's two natural-born sons who plot to destroy Valentine through their jealousy by persuading their father to send him to capture this wild man, Orson, 
a mission that they are certain will result in Valentine's death. But the bold Valentine, even while understanding the evil of his stepbrother's intent, bravely accepts the assignment, professing his love for his adopted father, the king. I will do so, my dear father. And the courageous Valentine goes to the cave, where no wild beasts, let alone men, would go. And he calls upon the wild man, Orson, whom he yet knows not to be his brother of blood, and in the process, slays the mother bear. And suddenly, crying for the first time like a human child, the wild Orson submits to Valentine and returns with him to the kingdom where suddenly another crisis is at hand. An evil green knight of unprecedented powers holds a royal princess hostage, and no man within the kingdom, even the valiant Valentine, can overcome the remarkable abilities of this knight, who laughs at them as he explains, Not one of you has the power to subdue me. Only one suckled by a wild beast could match my power. Well, what do you know? And Valentine looks to Orson, who rises and steps forth. And it is only at this moment that the men realize that they are, in fact, brothers. And with that, Orson steps in to fulfill this task for his brethren. And upon conquering the evil Green Knight, the previously wild Orson saves the royal princess and reigns supreme alongside his brother over the kingdom forevermore. Wow. Now that's quite a story. Why do we tell stories? What do they mean to us? I think we tell stories partly because they help us to make connections, important connections between the known and the unknown, to help us understand things we would otherwise fear or hate. Stories help us put things into context, don't they? Well, this medieval legend of Orson and Valentine was more than just a tale that these Dutch sailors arriving at this wild island of Manhattan carried within their psyches, as we shall come to see. And from within the process of taming this wild place emerges yet another story, which is, in fact, one of the more incredible tales of these two colliding civilizations, propelled by yet another discovery of Adrian Block, the one that I mentioned earlier, the one that can fit in your hand. Which was, in truth, as the remarkably perceptive Block would come to learn, nothing less than a sacred trading component to this culture. And one that, until now, only this one man from that faraway place was perceptive and receptive enough to understand its significance. Which he would soon see is in fact the singular key to the mastery of it all.
This is the podcast Island. The story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, Wow, history is cool. Episode 7, Wampum, 1612. Austin, on Valentine. When Adrian Block returned from his first trip to the New World, the reception and subsequent planning could not have been more different than it had been when Henry Hudson had returned from that same place two years earlier. You see, unlike Hudson, Block actually got paid. (laughs) Since he followed orders and met the expectations of his employers. In Block's case, actually exceeding those expectations but also because after Block's first voyage to this wild new place, his employer had no intention of letting him go. And that was good, because Block, unlike Hudson, had no intention of running away. In fact, these ambitious Lutherans immediately began designs on Block's second trip to Manhattan. Now, there are many reasons why this overall epic story fascinates me and not the least of which is because of how much of it has been lost or forgotten, and that the real version of this story and many of the integral details along the way require some unearthing. And this is why I call it our lost American history, largely because our American history is all too often mistaken for something that starts somewhere around the mid-1700s. Yes, again, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolution, and eventually a republic of the people, by the people, and for the people. Absolutely, that is America. But it's not the beginning. What it is, is the culmination of centuries of oppressed souls seeking their true and lasting refuge. In fact, the very refuge in which we live today. For the most part. And this is one of the reasons that I feel so passionate about digging deep into this story. The story of what actually happened here. And when I say here, I mean it firstly in the widest sense of here being today's America. But as we break down the story, as we dig that shovel into the ground with these incredible historical excavators like Yap and Dr. Gehring, as we dig into the past, into the darkness of Jewett's journal, and into the conflicted psyche of Abacuc Prickett's, and into the fragments that remain of Hudson's, and into the directions given to him by Dirk Van Oss of the Dutch East India Company, and of the records of our Lutheran trailblazer, the free-thinking Lambert Van Twainhuysen, a remarkable man of vision and innovation. As we dig down deeper, here starts to mean, more specifically, more definitively, the land that would become known as New Netherland, which of course would be centered in its capital of New Amsterdam, nestled into the southern tip of Manhattan Island, which is from where I believe in my heart that the true soul of our United States of America forever emanates. 
Chance Efnepause. We'll be right back after the break. Now, that's not meant to irk any of my friends in Boston or Virginia or anywhere else. We all have our territorial pride to some extent. But, damas and erin, mesdames et messieurs, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen, when Adrian Block's boot heels pressed into the soil of that open clearing at the southern tip of Manhattan Island, they left an imprint that would become the soul of the nation that we are today. And that's not a territorial claim, but rather a conceptual one. An observation of the people who came here, the motivations that drove them, and the society that they eventually formed. And one of the key motivations in this equation was escaping the affliction of oppression, which these tough Protestant underdogs were going to do relentlessly, unconditionally, whether it killed them or not. Because the Manhattan pioneers and the people who employed them were visionaries, visionary entrepreneurs, who simply saw the world in a very different way than their oppressors. They saw the world as a sphere of opportunity, and they saw people as the key component of that opportunity. To the Manhattan pioneers, People were not chattel. People were not items to be manipulated. Rather, they were the key to this opportunity. As a businessman, Fontainehuizen was energetic and sharp. He had a knack for creating relationships, which he used to build a wide network that stretched all over the world, from northern Russia to Svalbard, North America, Northwest Africa, even Istanbul. And that knack for creating relationships, this interglobal networking, was clearly a trickle-down dynamic in the Van Twainheisen hiring scheme. Because Adrian Block was more than just a proficient navigator. While only three years younger than his boss, he was also a more intrepid version of him. And in being that, Adrian Block was someone who complemented Lambert Van Twainheisen's very unique business skill set in a way that nobody else could. Now... At the top of this series, I mentioned that I like to try to compare historical figures to more contemporary people. It's something that just helps me put the story into context somehow. And this Lambert Van Twainheisen reminds me of another person. Yes, I would say another visionary entrepreneur. One whom many of us, whether we're in the corporate world or not, feel like we know surprisingly well. In fact, some may opine that this man's rather vibrant company actually knows many of us more than a lot of us might like it to. So, when I compare Lambert Van Twainheisen to Jeff Bezos, I don't do it with any level of favor or judgment, but simply by the observation that I see two major similarities in these innovative businessmen who just happen to be separated by about four centuries. And those two similarities are, one, that they each essentially stepped in something, or perhaps 
happened upon it is a bit more family-friendly, something that they suddenly realize could make them very, very rich. And two, that upon realizing this opportunity, they each pursued the cultivation of it in a way quite unlike anyone else ever had before. And each pushed forth with tenacity and great fervor to eventual astounding results. This year of 1612 being a perfect example, when Van Twainhuysen so thoroughly convinced of the vibrant demand in this new trade that he commissioned not one, but two voyages to Manhattan by Block and Christensen in a single year. Now, <laughs> it's nearly impossible for us today to appreciate the veracity of that travel schedule, but consider for a moment that two voyages from Amsterdam to Manhattan and back, all investment of money and spirit aside, would also require no less than a total of 36 collective weeks at sea. And with only 52 weeks in a year, well, you're all smart enough to do the math. And yeah, <laughs> that's a busy year. And in the case of Bezos... In the process of selling more books and other stuff online than anyone else ever before, has simply become the wealthiest man on earth while doing it. And yet, I understand human nature, and that there does exist an instinct to, <laughs> you know, dislike or an inclination to want to discredit, perhaps, one of the wealthiest men on earth. But, Again, I think it's important to always try to dig below the surface a little bit, to look deeper, to listen to how people do things, to really examine the lives and the motivations that drive those people, those people who we don't yet know. Because I think that's really how you come to understand history through its characters. And by understanding the priceless lessons that the history of those characters offers. I also know that a lot of New Yorkers have already made up their minds about Amazon and or Jeff Bezos after the failure of that proposed operational center that was supposed to come to New York a few years back. And most of you, wherever you live, likely have an opinion on him as well. But if you listen to Jeff Bezos at all, he often speaks to the innovative opportunity that the Internet afforded him. And I don't think he would argue at all that timing had an awful lot to do with his vast success. And Jeff Bezos knew in 1994 the incredible value of this burgeoning Internet that was getting ready to explode. And of course, he kept his early formula very close to the vest. And while there was no internet in Manhattan in 1612, what there was was an increasingly vibrant native community, eager for access to goods that made their lives better and more spiritually secure. 
and Van Twainhuysen and his team were so thoroughly convinced that this market that they had happened upon held such incredible potential that they were convinced that its secrecy was critical. The destination of any international voyage of discovery in Block's day would have been part of the Dutch notarial records. And for this exact reason, the Van Twainhuysen group was very careful to disguise it. They did not put their destination as, they didn't call it Virginia, which is what they called most of this part of the world back then. They didn't call it America. They wrote Newfoundland. And also, unlike Hudson, Block and his men were never going to Newfoundland. They were coming here, to this new world. To a native community that, all things considered, was remarkably welcoming to them and eager to trade with these men from this faraway place. And many of these natives were in awe of the wonders of what might be out there. They did, in fact, want to know about what they did not yet know. The most Native Americans basically had an animistic outlook in life. They saw the world it, in all aspects of the natural world as living, as sentient. And I think the point is, for animistic people, it's all alive. It's all alive in the same way. Yeah, Paul. Now, in addition to knowing a bit about the topic, our next guest also happens to be writing the book as well. Literally. A history of the use and development of this very thing that we're talking about. So this is a really good guy to bring into the conversation. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I am very honored to introduce from George Fox University, our next historical excavator, Dr. Paul Otto. You know, the earliest accounts have the Dutch saying, well, they, they use the word Manitou to describe the encounter. Mm -hmm. Manitou simply meaning yeah. anything that they can't explain or is too wondrous to explain or that they can't understand. So, in addition to there already being a built-in spiritual component to business transactions in Native American culture, to be consummating one of those transactions with these wondrous new beings in their strange and incredible floating houses who bear goods that only they seem to have. It adds even another layer um, of a mystical excitement for these native traders. Now, I haven't forgotten that I told you that of all Block's momentous discoveries, the greatest of all was neither a waterway nor a place, but rather something that could fit in one's hand. And why was it that Adrian Block, of all people, was the very first European to really discover it? Because others had seen it before. Jacques Cartier in the 1530s, and Hudson saw it in 1609. But neither cared enough nor was nearly focused enough on that to be able to even begin to understand the significance of it. Now, I've mentioned before that I've been an actor, and, you know, <laughs> if, if I've learned anything about acting in three decades of doing it, it would be this. 
that one of the best attributes to really great acting is being a really great listener. Why? Because good listening or great listening is essentially ingesting the soul of someone else and reacting accordingly and thereby residing within that psyche. Well, among his many talents, Adrian Block was a world-class listener. I think Lambert von Tweenhuis specifically asked Block to be in charge because he was the right kind of guy, someone who knew the art of the deal without screwing up. He had the people skills, not just to deal with his own European crew, but also to engage in trade with native peoples. And that's exactly what he was doing when he discovered this thing. Because the only passageway Adrian Block was ever concerned with in this new world was the one that led into the inner trade mindset of the indigenous civilization that occupied it. He searched along the coast, all along the Connecticut coast. And in his epic style of searching, looking, and listening, making his way along the Connecticut and Long Island coastlines, by golly, Block found it. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. It comes from the uh, lip of clamshells. The whelk clam produces the white uh, zavant and the cahog clam the purple. And the purple is more prized and more, more valued than the white. And what they would do, they would turn this into a cylinder and then bore a hole through the uh, cylinder and string it. And this was prized especially by the upper Hudson Indians, the Mohicans and the Mohawks. The Algonquin's name for Long Island was Zewinhaki because the waters around it was from where this Zewant was acquired. But the more commonly used name for this thing would be the word that originates with the Narragansett Indians from today's Rhode Island coast, which was Wampum Peak, which would evolve into its more widely used name of Wampum. But no matter whether you call it Zaywant or Wampum, this thing was much, much more than just a pretty arrangement of maritime jewelry. They soon realized that this Zavon or Wampum, that there's some value in this because of it's a, a work-intensive device. For Native Americans, this was not money. It was not materialistic. Rather, the white beads had a symbolic and spiritual significance. It represented brightness, light, a good, warm feeling, like trust. Without it, trade could not have a good outcome. The art of the deal requires wampum. It was prized as a, uh, as a device to uh, record records, treaties, relationships, and it was something that they couldn't produce upriver. The clams uh, that you can get along the coast of New England and Connecticut were uh, not available up here. They now understand, look, we show up with this. It's, it's a matter of respect to the, the religion, the group, the culture uh, that, you're, that you're visiting within. Things are developing. Things are changing. It facilitates the whole transaction. 
you have two very different cultures coming into contact. They have to have a way of relating to one another. And the savant that it's uh, the Muda van de Handel, it's the mother of the trade. De Muder van de Handel, the mother of the trade. This was, in fact, Adrian Bloch's greatest discovery. And in discovering this mother of the trade, Adrian Bloch would become the great-grandfather of modern American trade. To future financial titans like John Jacob Astor, Cornelius Vanderbilt, James Roosevelt, and John D. Rockefeller, Adrian Block was a glacier carving deep pathways in this market landscape that would make men rich for centuries to come. And through his unprecedented perception and understanding of this mother of the trade, Adrian Block began to penetrate the societies of this yet undefined market in this yet untamed new world in a way that no European had ever before. So much so that an Algonquin sachem who admired Block and this unprecedented opportunity so enthusiastically that he presented Block with an incredible and novel arrangement whereby this sachem's own teenage sons would travel aboard Block's ship, the Fortan, to Amsterdam, where they will have an educational sojourn in order to learn the language and this remarkable new trade system from the inside out. It's a way of forming a relationship. Right. And the sachem could see the advantage in that because it would only be advantageous for him in the fur trade. Right. And they weren't mistreated. They were treated no. very well. And yeah. oh, again, yeah. I think it yeah. speaks to the sophistication of Adrian Block as a, as a leader and explorer that he could take this on from a very important member of the Native American community that this man would entrust his two sons to Block. Yeah, and they're going to become Native guides for Dutch. They're going to learn Dutch. They'll be prized individuals. They're going to become important men. And I'm sure the father understood that, that this was a part of their education. There's a very valuable semester abroad. Sure. And as this arrangement proceeds and the two native sons join Bloch's voyage back to Amsterdam, the Dutch come to assign certain pet names to these brothers in order to make connections between the known and the unknown to help them understand things and people that they might otherwise fear or hate in order to put this unprecedented scenario into context by tagging these Algonquin brothers with the pet names of Orson and Valentine. And from there shall matriculate this story into its next incredible chapter in this strange and wild island. And you will not believe what that entails, which we're going to get into in our very next episode. Our sincere thanks to Dr. Charles T. Gehring and his New Netherland Institute in Albany. Charlie, your remarkable knowledge, spirit, and insight have been integral to cultivating this project and moving this voyage along. Verdank, mijn vriend. Verdankt. 
Professor Paul Otto chairs the Departments of History, Sociology, and Politics at George Fox University. His remarkable book, The Dutch Muncie Encounter, The Struggle for Sovereignty in the Hudson Valley, is available from most major booksellers. We enthusiastically thank Dr. Otto for coming on and providing his remarkable knowledge into this incredible era of this wild island of Manhattan. Verdankt. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate, James Mallon. Executive producer, Alec Baldwin. For Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, Wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time.